Spite of Courage is about ordinary people aspiring to live their best life by overcoming vulnerability and fear. It's about finding our courage and sharing our stories so we can be who we're truly meant to be and discovering in the process that we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. To listen, go to biteofcourage.com or your favorite podcast app. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bite of Courage. I'm honored and humbled to introduce you to my guests today. Christine and Jean Bosco Rudigengwa are survivors of the Rwandan genocide, and they are Tutsi. In 1994, nearly one million Tutsi were slaughtered in this genocide, and for more than 100 days, they were forced to endure the horrors of it. Now, an inescapable part of their story, John Bosco, with Dan Grudy, has written about this shameful period in a stunning new memoir called Love Prevails, One Couple's Story of Faith and Survival and the Rwandan Genocide. Chronicling their harrowing ordeal in their last several weeks at a hotel, which is now famously known as Hotel Rwanda from the Academy Award-winning film of the same name, they were able to seek refuge until the Tutsi-backed and heavily armed Rwandan Patriotic Front took control of the Rwandan capital, Kigali. Christine and Jean Bosco have graciously agreed to be here today to share their story. Nirakaza Neze, Christine and Jean Bosco. Thank you for having us. In an effort to create a sacred space for them, I'd like to dedicate our time together to Christine and Jean Bosco, the loved ones they've lost, and the people who are still suffering from the aftermath of this genocide 25 years later. As a symbol of our intentions, I've asked them to join me in lighting a candle before we begin, and then we'll say a blessing. Christine, Jean Bosco, would you like to start? We light this candle in memory of our parents, our siblings, our relatives and friends gone too soon. Miracose, thank you. And now I'll say a blessing. God, please give us the strength to accompany Christine and Jean Bosco as we embark on this journey with them. Grant us the courage to listen to their story with open hearts and to not look away from the darkness of evil, but instead the goodness of your light where love prevails. We ask this in your name. Amen. 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 Because of the language barrier, Christine will join in, but we'll mostly be hearing from Jean Bosco today. So, Christine, please feel free to jump in anytime, okay? Okay. My first question is, what is your definition of courage? I think, generally speaking, we know courage as the ability to be strong in the face of danger and have the nerve to do something that would frighten anyone. But I would say, in my own words, I think it's a state of mind that removes all fears and allows you to go forward and achieve a goal usually a difficult and or even a dangerous one. You are so determined that nothing can stand in your way. That state of mind, that unstoppable feeling in the face of difficulty or danger, is what I see as courage. That's beautiful. Thank you. 
Well, before we get into how you needed this kind of courage, I'd first love to hear you describe the beauty of your country. Do you remember Rwanda before the genocide? Rwanda is probably one of the most beautiful countries in the world. It's just under the equator. It's high altitude, allows for a nice and dry climate. And in Rwanda, it's never cold, it's never too hot. Rwanda is made of beautiful hills and valleys and several lakes. It's known for its hills. It's called the country of a thousand hills. In the northwest of Rwanda, there is a natural forest where you can find mountain gorillas. And in the east, you have a savanna with the Akagera National Park, which is home for various animals like elephants. You have lions, you have giraffes, you have antelopes, and many birds. But most of the country is made of hills and valleys. I remember when I was a child, I used to visit my great-grandmother uh, several kilometers from my hometown in the south. I'd walk through these hills and valley, and some of the memories I have are of the beauty of the countryside. It's really a natural paradise. Hills almost in perfect relation through which you can occasionally see streams of fresh and clear water. I loved mostly the soft breeze blowing through eucalyptus trees scattered over the green hills. The sun never failed to show up every morning. At about 6 a.m. every day, and always fades very gracefully with beauty behind the hills, and I would say promptly around 6 p.m. every day. Rwanda has a great culture. The Rwandan culture is centered around dignity, grace, and beauty. You see dignity and grace in the way people carry themselves, especially the older generation. And I believe Rwandans, in general, are good people at heart. <laughs> this may be surprising for a country where horrible crimes of genocide were committed, but I believe it is true that Rwandans are dignified people, generous and welcoming. One of the great traditions in Rwanda is the traditional wedding. Weddings in Rwanda are always spectacular, with very well-polished ceremonies, beautiful songs, and dances. The music in Rwanda is mostly soft music. Rwanda have a very distinct type of music, which is uh, very soft songs, singing about the beauty of the land, singing about love, but also singing about loss. You have also different sort of instruments, mostly drums. It's great to hear 
the music from cultural troops and you always have inhore which is the dance of the warriors with drums and the dances of the young women which is very very graceful interestingly the drum is the instrument of the heart that's correct drum is a very happy sounding instrument and this is in the heart of the traditional music of Rwanda. And tell me about your families. I remember when we started the dating uh, back in 1992. I met everyone in a beautiful family. So thank you for having us. I was born in a family of nine kids. And the firstborn, my father was a teacher and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. We grew up, we were blessed to have a mother who was really dedicated to God. She took us to church every day, especially every Sunday. We always were praying every night before we go to bed. She was dedicated to Virgin Mary. So every Sunday after Mass, today we always find out who needs to be helped. And sometimes we went with my mother to help those elderly to clean up their homes. I loved to be home at night when everybody was seated at the table and they share stories. Especially my dad was a good storyteller. He also was a good singer. He used to sing, but... I didn't have the talent myself, but it was really good. It was really uh, like a peaceful moment I miss every day. So I hope I can have my kids remember their home the way I remember my house when I grew up. Did you lose most of your family in the genocide? Yes, I lost. We were nine three brothers and six girls. I lost three brothers and three sisters with a total of six siblings and my mother. Yeah, so... My dad survived. My dad survived, but he died later. And Jean Bosco, how about your family? I grew up in a family of seven children. I was the second my parents worked for the local hospital. My father was a physician assistant, and my mother was a midwife nurse. They loved us unconditionally, and they taught us to be humble and to love others. They took us to church every Sunday. We learned how to be good students. My father, I remember, was... Uh, a very serious man about work, work ethic, and he always asked us to study hard. And he taught us to be disciplined. He was serious, but he didn't like unfairness. He, he wanted us to be fair to others too. My mother was a very sweet person, very loving mother, beloved by the community. It was said that she had a gift for delivering babies. 
Every time there are complications at the hospital, she was always called to intervene to help a mother deliver their babies. And she was very, very well loved by the community. And she was a very good, devout Catholic. She is the one who really uh, made sure we go to church and we pray every day. She had a statue of the Virgin Mary in our, in our house. Uh, she would go occasionally uh, back to her hometown, which is where there were apparitions of the Virgin Mary. This is a town called Kibeho in the south. On our free time with my siblings, especially my older brother, we played soccer. We, with all the kids, we played cards in the backyard. I remember the good times we had uh, during vacation time. I went to boarding school at age 12, and I never get to know better my younger siblings, especially my younger brother, Regis, and my younger sister, Rose. These are kids. I was 14 years older than Regis. So I didn't get to really see him quite often, but I knew he was a special kid who was bright and he aspired to be a medical doctor. He was a funny guy, a funny kid too. Very, very funny. Unfortunately, he was killed and my younger sister was killed as well. These were kids in high school and until now, I never came to terms with this loss. I lost three of my siblings and I lost both of my parents and many, many other members of our extended family. Between Christine and I, we counted about 97 people from our families who were killed during the genocide. Speaking of your large family, I know that your last family gathering, of course, you couldn't have known that it was your last, but that it has a very special place in both of your hearts. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I should say first, I first met Christine at her uncle's house where she lived while attending high school in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. Her uncle, Laurent, he had worked with my father at the hospital in my hometown before moving to Kigali. But I fell in love with Christine later when she was finishing college. This was in the summer of 1992, almost two years before the genocide. It was on a tragic day. Her aunt Melanie, the wife of her uncle Laurent, had died unexpectedly. I remember I was seated in the front yard with many other people who came to mourn the death of Melanie. But when I saw Christine, I forgot for, for a moment that I was at awake. <laughs> Something hit me in the inside. It was like I was struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> it was a feeling I had never experienced before. Immediately, I knew I had fallen in love. At that time, she was 25 and I was 28. After that day, I invited her out on a date and we continued to go out and we embarked on a romantic journey. And with each passing day, our love grew stronger. Then, 
a year and a half later, in December of 1993, we had our traditional engagement ceremony. In Rwanda, when you fall in love with a young woman, you need to bring the matter in front of your family. It's a tradition. Because even if you propose to her and she accepted, your family needs to go officially ask for a hand in marriage. And this is what I did. This was on December 26, 1993, the day after Christmas. It was a bright day and many people gathered in front of her house under a tent. My father had invited many guests from our hometown and I had invited many friends and we went to Christmas house. It was a nice day and they welcomed us as royalty and we were seated in the front yard. People were very happy, I remember. I was there with my father, my mother, my uncles, aunts, and many other family members, including my siblings, my very best friends, and even uh, some neighbors. It was really a packed house. And all of Christmas size, uh, she had her parents, of course, her aunts, including Sister Taya. This is her aunt, who is a Catholic nun, uh, someone I, I respect a lot. She did uh, much for the Rwandan people. She had different projects to help the uh, kids in living in the streets and also to read the Bible to, to prisoners. So she was there. Many other members of Christian family, of course, uh, all the nine siblings and numerous neighbors and friends. My mother's uncle spoke on behalf of my family. He was a very skilled person. He spoke very smoothly, and his speech was really uh, very much appreciated by the audience. He was called a museum of culture. He knew all the details of the modern culture. And uh, on increasing size, uh, a local teacher of very respected men spoke on behalf of her family as well. And in Rwanda, the engagement ceremony is a beautiful ceremony with uh, speeches of poetic resonance, with songs, with dances, food and drinks. It's a serious ceremony, but also it's a play marked by good jokes, but also it is conducted in a friendly and courteous atmosphere. So that day was a special day for us, having all these family members gathered and listening to these speeches and these songs and dances and having a good time. My family presented the dory to Christian's family. The dory in Rwanda is a cow, so you, you bring a cow. Just so my audience know, Christine is laughing when you said cow, so that's the only reason I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's because she knows people uh, from different traditions may not understand why a cow. Cow in Rwanda 
is important even when the tradition it's not a cow to slaughter and um, provide meat. No, it's a cow that is like a symbol of unity, of prosperity between the families. If you have some means, you can bring more cows. Actually, in one tradition, it was eight cows. The number eight was important. My understanding of eight is that it's a symbol for infinity. Why was that the number important? You know, I don't know exactly. I grew up knowing eight cows is the tradition, but it was very, very beautiful. One of the things you wrote about was the poetic resonance to it. It was like a play. It was an art form, this ceremony. And I got the impression in the way you wrote it in the book that it was also about making sure that you were both making the right choice. And so he kind of pressed you to make sure, as someone might ask their own child, are you sure this is the right one? So it seemed there was a little bit of that, but it was done so beautifully and eloquently. But it included everyone in your family. In the truest sense, it was like when you marry somebody, you are marrying their family. That's correct. When you marry someone, you are embracing their family. And this is the message. With everybody in the same place and having a good time. But little did we know that this was the last gathering. Because three months later, the genocide was to start. And almost everyone at the ceremony was to be killed. Well, it is bittersweet that this was your last family gathering, but it is nice that you have this memory of them because it's so beautiful. And I know there's a long, complicated history of ethnic hatred between the Tutsi and the Hutu, but can you tell me briefly how that developed and how it escalated to the point of an all-out ethnic cleansing of the Tutsis? Actually, from what I learned in Rwanda's history, there was no divide between Hutu and Tutsi for a long time. For centuries, Rwanda was a kingdom up to the, to the 50s. And during that time, Rwandans were united under the authority of the king. Kings were often chosen from a clan within the minority Tutsi ethnic group. And for decades, Rwanda's colonial power relied on the king and his entourage, but in the late 50s, the system of monarchy was challenged by a rising political movement, which was formed by Hutu politicians who wanted political power to be in the hands of the Hutu majority instead of the Tutsi kings. Eventually, they changed their attitude towards the king and towards the Tutsi elite. And then they started supporting the Hutu movement in the late 50s. And this Hutu movement carried out a bloody revolution in 1959 that the kingdom formed a republic. Starting then, Tutsi were excluded from political life and from different aspects of the country's governance. Many Tutsi were killed, unfortunately, and thousands fled to neighboring countries. But also other Tutsi remained in Rwanda, but with very, very limited rights. 
throughout the 60s, the Tutsi who fled to neighboring countries started organizing themselves and they would launch attacks attacking the new Rwandan Hutu army with the goal to be allowed to come back and participate in the governance of the country. But the new government didn't want them to return. And every time there were such attacks, the Tutsi inside the Rwanda were killed. It was as though they were hostages. This regime was removed in 1973 by the chief of the army, then Major General Juvenal Habjarimana, the one who became president of Rwanda, and he stayed in power for 21 years. He came saying he's bringing unity, but unfortunately, as soon as he took power, he continued the policies of discrimination against the Tutsi. He even started discriminating against the Hutu from the south because he was someone from the north. Of course, this created some tensions. The Tutsi living in neighboring countries, mostly Uganda, now they organize themselves militarily. This was a strong movement. And they didn't want this movement to be a movement of a Tutsi, just wanted to come back. They also wanted more freedom, uh, democracy. And this is why in 1990, there was a movement called the Rwandan Patriotic Front that attacked Rwanda with the goal of challenging the government of Juvenal Habyarimana to, to share power. The reaction was immediate. Juvenal Habyarimana was a dictator. He was not to let this go very easy. He started saying that uh, all the Tutsi are accomplices of this attack and thousands were put in jail and some were even killed. People were scared. This was uh, in 1990. But gradually, they started expressing themselves, speaking against the dictatorial regime. And gradually, they formed other political parties. And new newspapers being created, and uh, a new movement was born. 1991, 1992 was a time we are marching towards democracy. The president of Rwanda realized this was a serious movement and he couldn't stop it. And he agreed to share power, he agreed for a ceasefire, and the United Nations even helped the process, and uh, the government of Rwanda signed a peace agreement with these new political parties, including the Rwandan Patriotic Front. This was in August 1993, and the United Nations sent a peacekeeping mission to Rwanda, led by a Canadian general, his name is General Romeo Dallaire. 
And I remember when we saw these troops, they had at least 2,500 soldiers from the UN. We said, now Rwanda is moving in the right direction. The, the political situation is going to improve. They are going to form a government of unity and the war is going to be over. Some people had, uh, in the meantime, uh, started to send their families outside Rwanda. Now they are bringing them back because uh, the new political situation was improving. But at the same time, we knew there were some hardliners in the Rwandan army who didn't approve of the signing of a peace agreement. They didn't want these Tutsi fighting from outside to be part of the government. For a long time, Tutsi had been excluded in everything. Now was not the time for the Tutsi to be included. So there were some hardliners in the Rwandan political system who didn't approve of the signing of the peace agreement. And we heard some noise in the country. They created a militia called Inherahamwe, and they created an extremist radio called the Radio Television Milkorin. And these militia were singing in the streets and on the hills, saying that you cockroaches, Tutsi were called cockroaches. And they were singing, we are going to exterminate you. And the uh, extremist radio was repeating the same, spreading the messages of hate. But um, most people thought it was uh, too late for hate. Most people said a peace agreement had been signed. Both parties have agreed to peace. The international community is even sending a peacekeeping mission. So there is no way these extremists are going to prevail. There is no way they are going to do what they are saying they are going to do. We took these militia as illegal gangs who cannot do what they are saying they are going to do. It's hard to wrap your mind around the evil that humans can be capable of. I'm sure it was hard to imagine that. It is hard to imagine. Now we live here in the U.S., if someone comes and say oh, we are going to wipe out a group of people, no one is going to believe it because it's not natural. So many people didn't believe this was possible. And also, it was not now Tutsi against Hutu. It was now right against wrong. Only extremists Hutu were on the other side and didn't want the peace agreement. So at that time, they, they were a minority, and no one believed that minority of extremists Hutu was going to put fire on the country. How did you know that it had happened, and what were you seeing and hearing around you? Until February of 1994, we didn't see much. Now, on February 22nd, a politician was killed. This was uh, the beginning of trouble. A member of the cabinet was killed. 
He was a member of the opposition, and when he was killed, his supporters started to fight back. And another politician from the hardliners was killed as well. So two important politicians killed in 24 hours. It almost lighted up the country. Many Tutsi now in different areas of Kigali were killed on that day. But this was not yet a large-scale massacre. These were small killings as a retaliation to these political assassinations, almost two months before the start of the genocide. So was there a moment that you knew the genocide officially began? We knew the president of Rwanda was still negotiating with the Rwanda Pacific Front and other politicians peace agreement, and all these politicians were expected to nominate their representatives in the new government. And on April 6, 1994, the Rwandan president went to a neighboring country in a meeting to continue talks on the peace agreement. And on his way back, his plane was shot down. This is what started the Libyan genocide. Stutsi started to be killed on a large scale. Now the hardliners of the Hutu extremists uh, would blame the minority Tutsi that uh, you see these are responsible for the death of uh, our president. And they put in place uh, the whole machine to start killing the Tutsi. There were a lot of people who thought that it was also the Hutu that did it, correct? It was confusion. Actually, until now, there is no official information about who killed the president. Is it his own people who didn't approve of him signing the peace agreement? Is it the French uh, government? No one knows. So far, it's not clear. However, these extremists were very quick to point to enemy number one, which is the Tutsi. This is why it spread very, very quickly all over the country, and the Tutsi was pointed to as enemy number one. I remember when I came back to, uh, to drop off Christina at her house on April 6, 1994. It was around 8.30 or 9 p.m., and one of my neighbors called me. She was a medical doctor at the local hospital. And she told me the, the plane carrying the one president has been shot. And she said the president was dead. To me, the news took a long moment to register in my mind. What did that mean? But automatically, I heard shots shooting in the neighborhood. And I was wondering, what's going on? Is it a coup? The whole night we couldn't see. It was as if we were shooting from our backyard. And on April 7 in the morning, there was a communique from the, the Rwandan army asking the people to stay home. And I knew immediately this was not a good sign. Because they were asking us to stay home, that means they were going to go from house to house asking everyone their ID. The Rwandan identity card mentioned the ethnic group uh, very clearly. If you are Tutsi, it says you are Tutsi. If you are Hutu, it says you are Hutu. And you had to carry these papers everywhere, right? 
and you had to kill the sweepers everywhere. If you don't have them, then you are suspicious. And on April 7, I heard this communique that we have to stay home. I was listening to the national radio, the BBC, one of the French radios, and I was on the phone with some of my friends, and I learned a lot. People were being killed in the capital city. The prime minister was killed, along with 10 Belgians of the, the peacekeeping mission who were guarding her. And some of my, my neighbors were being killed. And I couldn't believe this was happening. It, it was like a bad dream. And you witnessed the killings. You saw it. It was all around you, right? It, it was all around. When I heard my neighbor was killed, the house was just behind mine and his body was in front of his house. And of course, I was scared for me. I was scared for Christine, wondering if I don't see her again. We had plans to, to have our wedding in the summer. Now everything was in question. And I was scared for our families in the capital. A week before I had brought my younger sister, Rose, and my younger brother to visit my sister who had a baby. And they were now stuck in the capital and I was afraid they are going to be killed. And also I was scared of Christine's family in the East. And the killings were brutal. People were just being slaughtered, mostly with machetes, as I understand it. That is correct. People were being killed with machetes everywhere. Tutsi were fleeing in churches, hundreds and hundreds of them. And we will learn later that most of these people who fled in churches were killed. And they went to churches believing no one is going to attack them in the house of God. But they perished there. You wrote in your book that you had a phone call with Christine, and after that phone call, you fell to your knees and began to pray. Can you tell me what your faith was like before that phone call? Well, I grew up in a very Catholic family. We went to church every Sunday. We said prayers before meals, uh, before going to bed. Our parents taught us to love others. I was taught the Ten Commandments and the Church's Commandments, and Throughout my life, I tried to abide by them. But I, I must admit that after I went to college, away from my parents, and once I started my professional career, the faith didn't register the way it should. I was still a good Catholic going to church occasionally. But I wouldn't say it was a model of faith. So before that phone call, I had never prayed deeply the way I did after realizing that my fiancé was in danger. And once I called Christine and I heard she was in danger, I submitted myself to God in total humility, begging God for a miracle. I think at that moment, I genuinely reconnected with my faith. And as I reflect back to that moment now, I am able to say that when we pray, it's not because God commands us to do so, but it's because we need God. We need Him to guide us. We need Him to give us hope. 
we need him to protect us. And sometimes it requires a moment of anguish, a moment of difficulty to reconnect genuinely with our faith. You also wrote in a passage in your book that you had heard an inner voice that had always carried you through troubled times. Can you tell me about the inner voice that would continue to carry you through what would be the next almost 100 days? That is true. Something inside telling you that everything will be okay. I remember when I was a kid, I always felt someone, something was watching over me. I'm even sure it's connected to our faith. A belief that there is a shield around you against evil. Of course, I knew this was not reality. It was a wishful thinking, but so strong that it became reality. Is it that what we call optimism or positive thinking? I don't know. But I'm sure it's there. It's in my mind of positive thinking that tells me always, you are going to be okay. It's that inner voice that is whispering every time I am in difficulty, every time uh, I am in a situation of anguish, you will be okay. It's always there. And I remember I had it ever since I was a kid. Would you call that inner voice God or the Holy Spirit or the Blessed Mother? Possibly. I don't know if we ever heard God speaking, but I believe, yes, uh, it's a voice of goodness inside us. And I believe this goodness is put there by God. You said at one point, I've got to think with my heart. Because our heart has something we cherish. Love. And love is one of the strongest motivations to feel good and to do good. Thinking with our mind is not enough. When you think with your heart, you are certain that your thought is in, in the right place. But it's true. I believe that there is a way to think with our heart. And it's not the thought of reason. It's the thought of love. And now I want to shift gears a little bit and get into courage and the kind of courage that you described earlier and how you used that during this particular period of time. I know when you made it to Hotel Rwanda, religion really didn't matter. The humanity of the people who came together on the top floor of that hotel to pray and to love each other filled me with enormous hope. And the goodness of God's light in that moment was such a powerful image. And it's one of the many affirmations of the title of your book, Love Prevails. Can you tell me how you found the courage to get to that hotel and what that experience was like praying with those people who only had a thin line of protection? There are so many people who, who are in the same situation as me, who are running for their lives. And they were all scared. And we did was to go back to our faith and to find strength. We would meet at the top room of the hotel. And I was surprised to see people from different denominations. Catholics, Anglicans, Baptists, Jehovah Witnesses, Muslims, even non-believers. And we were united by one thing and one thing only. We wanted protection. 
and our faith has always got us that uh, if you ask, you will be given. And we wanted to ask God to perform a miracle. And we believed God will be performing a miracle and helping us. So it was not surprising to meet at this top level of the hotel and to us to be in total humility. Tell God how scared we were and how we wanted his protection. We didn't have any courage. We just wanted to be humble kids in front of God and ask him his protection. And I think it's the way humanity should be. Why should we each conduct ourselves differently? Why we have the same common problems? Why do we have the same issues? Shouldn't we always conduct us like we did in the top level of our hotel to put ourselves humbly in the hands of God, recognize that we are weak, and ask God for protection? That said, I could not believe how many times you gambled with your own life, though, John Bosco. If I didn't know the outcome, I would have thought, there's no way that he's going to make it. Only James Bond would get out of this one because you kept putting yourself in more dangerous situations. In fact, by the time you got to that hotel, Christine wasn't there, and you figured out how to get out of that hotel so you could get to her and then hopefully reach her alive and then turn around and get back to the hotel. Now, that took a lot of courage. Can you explain to me what were you thinking? <laughs> That's true. I gambled with my own life. The first time is when soldiers attacked my home. This was exactly on April 10, 1994. And they ordered us, uh, me and my sister and my cousin uh, and some other people, they ordered us to sit on the ground in my backyard. I knew then it was over. I didn't know how I, I was going to survive. And I uh, remember saying uh, prayers sitting on the ground in, the, in my backyard. But when they left briefly, probably going to check on something, probably on our identity, I got up and went to see my neighbor. I knew that sitting there, not doing anything will not help us. Something told me you need to get up, you need to get up. And I did. I could be caught, but I had to do something. And my neighbor, Therese, she called someone to help us. And that person came and helped us. So this is gamble number one, to get up from the ground knowing the three soldiers can come any time, but uh, I needed it to do something because uh, had I not done that, we probably would have been killed. Then a second time at the Swiss village, more than twice, actually, I gambled with my life when the killers attacked that place. I was stuck there. I had to hide with my sister on the roof at the Swiss village. And I knew I was stuck. I didn't see any outcome. But at some point, my mind refused to be stuck in an impossible situation. And I remember my mind was working very, very fast. And uh, I'm telling you, the mind has extraordinary capabilities. When you are in danger, your mind will work very, very hard to find you a solution. And this is what happened. 
I cannot take credit for this. I don't have the skills, I don't have the knowledge of how you get out of a difficult situation. But at that time, I was in danger and I was thinking fast and deeply. And gambling with life paid off because at that time, at the Swiss village, I confronted the three people in military uniform and I convinced them that somehow if they take me to safety, I will give them some money and they believed in me. But once I confronted them and they didn't kill me right away, I knew I had a chance of surviving. And then when I arrived at the hotel on April 14, I didn't know Christine was still alive, but I was hopeful. And I prayed she was alive, but I knew anything could happen any moment. I called her landlord, who was a moderate Hutu, who was a, a good person. I knew he was going to tell me what to do and tell me first what happened. When I called, he didn't pick up first, but later he did. And he delivered me the good news that Christine was okay. And at that moment, I knew then I had to go get her. There was no question in my mind. And this was April 18, 1994. I remember the landlord uh, called me back because he said, you need to come get Christine and go with them because everywhere in Rwanda there were roadblocks. I had to go get her. We were lucky there was a, an officer of the Rwandan army who was stationing at the hotel. And he had three bodyguards. And I had heard these three bodyguards could help us go outside of the hotel and get someone we want to bring to the hotel. And this is what I did. I negotiated with the three soldiers. They refused first, but then I insisted and they accepted. And I had to go with them because where Christine was staying, there was no street name, no house number. So I couldn't tell them to go there. And when I left the hotel, I remember some people were saying, you have lost your mind because we know some people went out of the hotel and they were killed. Outside of the hotel, it was not safe. Militia were everywhere. You could see them surrounding the hotel and the brownship machetes. So when I get out of the hotel, I went straight ahead to the road that descends along the large property of the National Bank in Kigali. Then I turned left down the street that led to Christian Place. My car was the only car on the street, which was very scary. I could be spotted easily by government soldiers or by militia. But nothing happened. I got to Christine's place. They had these three soldiers in my car. They had uh, their weapons pointing through the open windows. And never in my life had I thought I could be in such a situation. It's hard to even try to imagine what was happening even as you describe it. There was in this particular passage when you were writing about courage, and it surprised me, if I may, what you write is, 
I was deaf, blind, and driven by a powerful feeling, ready to confront any obstacle that stood in my way. The feeling was uncontrollable and unstoppable. Even in the face of death, I had no idea where or how I found the nerve to stay calm because my insides were burning with determination to get away from death. My body was being driven by a powerful force inside of me, and I had to go back and read that again, but I thought, wait a minute, I think he just used courage as a verb, because I've never heard anyone describe courage like this. The way you wrote about it captured courage in motion. I've heard of courageous acts, but this was pre-game courage, like in baseball. You know, when you're getting up on deck and preparing to bat, it felt like your courage was on deck and preparing you to bat. And I know you don't want to take credit for it, but I think it is connected to your faith, to the power of that little voice inside of you. doesn't matter what we call it, but there's a sense of intrinsic goodness that we all have. And when we're put into those situations, the answers will come to us. But you had the courage to listen to that little voice and to faith that seemed to be unshakable in the most horrific conditions. And I felt like there was something else at work, something deeper generating that courage inside of you. There had to be. That's what I was trying to get to because I felt like behind that courage was that little inner voice that you had talked about at the very beginning in the book and the love that prevailed, the love that you have for another human being to drive that powerful force at least for me, in my spiritual journey, what I've learned is that God comes to me through nature or through other people. You weren't alone at that hotel. You were praying with people of all denominations. You were united as one. And through that, through those people, through those that power of love, to feel united in that way, that drove you to get to Christine and to make sure that she was safe. And I just thought, this is also a love story, too. Not just between a man and a woman, but between human beings. Well, thank you very much for saying that. Uh, um, it's it's good to hear. I think love is a powerful feeling. And when I reflect back, this is true. I, I was I was blind. I was blind to the situation. I didn't want to see danger. I knew I had to go through danger. I was deaf to whatever people were saying because I knew I, I couldn't stop what I was up to. Love is a powerful feeling. It gives you strength you never knew you had. I was brought to reality around the hotel. This hotel was surrounded by killers. But being in love makes you blind to that reality and you have to go forward. And I was deaf to the sporadic gunshots in the horizon and to the sound of violence throughout the city. And I had one and one mission only, getting to Christine and bring her safe to the hotel. Beautiful girl. I, I will forever be thank you. Don't have to say. In, inside me, there was a powerful feeling a feeling of strength and resolve. Even in the face of death, I had accepted death instead of failing to go get Christine. And it was that feeling that was at the wheel of my car. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't control it. 
I, I can even say it was controlling me. That's what I mean. When you wrote that paragraph in there, it was controlling you, like being on deck. It was preparing you to bat, and you were just about to hit the greatest home run of your life. I have no doubt love brings courage. Love brings everything. It's a powerful feeling. It can pass through fire and stay intact. And I think we need to associate love with God. He puts love in us and he gave power to that love. And the power is given to love so love can be stronger than death. That's beautiful. I know it takes extraordinary courage to forgive, but like you said, you were surrounded by killers and they were evil incarnate. They destroyed your homes, your country, your families, your friends. How have you and Christine been able to deal with such devastation and loss and move through the healing process with such dignity and such an incredible capacity for forgiveness? I have always believed that forgiveness is what comes after tragedy. And we believe that after the genocide. I remember thinking about the person called Makongo. Makongo had worked for my parents for several decades. I remember him as a friend when I was a little boy. We would play soccer together, we would ride a bicycle together. He was like a brother to me. And in 1994, my parents trusted him and they told him when the killing started in our hometown, they told him they were going to hide at our farmland several kilometers from their home. And they told him, come and tell us when the violence is over. Three days later, he showed up with several militiamen armed with guns and machetes and clubs. He had become actually one of them. He was a Hutu, but I had never seen him as a Hutu. He was a brother to me. And he came with the killers, they took my parents and they killed them. I will learn later that he had been promised if he can bring the killers to where my parents were hiding, then he had been promised to inherit their properties. My father owned a small pharmacy business, and this man, Makongo, was told, you can have this pharmacy if you tell us where he is and if he's killed, everything is yours. And when I heard this, I wanted to meet him and to hear his motivations and to talk to him. I didn't see him. He had fled with so many other people. They fled to neighboring Congo. Millions and millions, actually, of Rwandans fled. And I remember thinking, actually, he didn't ask me for forgiveness. But I know in my heart that I have already forgiven him because he was not the mastermind of the killings. He was just an instrument. And I knew him for a long time. He was a good man. But uh, at some point, who knows what they told him, he's going to inherit their properties and their pharmacy. And, and he knew the Tutsi people, Tutsi people were going to be killed anyway, and he participated. But I don't think he was a bad person at heart. And in my mind, I have already forgiven Makongo. And I was hoping to see him one day and tell him that, but he never came back.
After the genocide, I was inspired by some people who did great things. This includes Christine's aunt, Sister Thea. Sister Thea invited me one day uh, to talk about a project she had with another brave priest called Father Jean. And the project they had was called Courage de Vivre, the courage to live. And this was a community of widows who had lost everything, including their husbands, their kids. They were all alone. And they were very, very angry. And these widows wanted nothing else but revenge. They wanted their killers to pay with their lives. They would hear nothing else. And Sister Thea and Jerome, they approached these widows and explained that forgiveness is what God wants us to do. They listened to these widows and gradually they talked to them. They listened to their stories. They read the Bible to them, and gradually these widows were changed forever. Actually, they even started to help the Hutu women whose husbands were in prison for having killed the Tutsi families. And this society became a society of united people who had forgiven each other. And I was involved in this project uh, because uh, at some point, Sister Thea and Father Jerome wanted to build houses for these widows, and uh, I was able to help, and we built hundreds of houses for these widows. But most importantly, I was inspired by the spirit of forgiveness that these widows had thanks to the teachings from Sister Thea and Father Jerome. I think it takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage to get to that place in one's heart where you realize you don't need the other person to forgive. I think forgiveness, for me anyway, has become a spiritual tool. And as a spiritual tool, it's helped me to forgive somebody. And in doing so, it has unhooked the pain and released it. I don't need the other person who I feel harmed by or who inflicted pain to forgive. That's correct. I was inspired by what I heard. Different examples of forgiveness. Seeing these survivors not holding grudges was really an inspiration to me. You also mentioned that a lot of these people had such resentment, so you tried to help them to learn how to forgive. One of the things that's been really important to me in my healing is humor. I'm not sure there's anything better than laughing, actually, because I have to be present to the moment. I can't worry about the past. I can't be anxious about the future. Do you remember the first time that you were ever able to laugh again? Well, I don't remember exactly, but what I know is... Christian and I got married on January 1st, 1995. This was a date Christian chose. She wanted to get out of 1994. And she said, why don't you choose the first day of 1995? And we got married that day. And I was a happy man at that time. And I remember laughing. And I can say for sure. That January 1st, 1995 is uh, a day I started laughing after the genocide. What a great way to mark that occasion. 
One of my idols is Mel Brooks, who said that humor was one of the greatest gifts of his life. And he also lost a lot of his ancestors in the German Holocaust and actually wrote a musical number called Springtime for Hitler in his Broadway musical, The Producers. And I had the good fortune seeing this and talking with him afterwards. And while I was shocked and horrified along with the rest of the audience watching this number, I had never laughed so hard in all my life. And he told me that the best way to seek revenge and to have a sweet life is to laugh in the face of evil. And that's helped me tremendously in my life. And as I was preparing for this interview, I thought about that. I'm curious to know what you think about Mel Brooks's prescription for laughing in the face of evil. Well, I agree that it's the right prescription. But in the case of Rwanda, of course, there was never a formal way of practicing that prescription when it comes to genocide. Nothing public like what you just described here was done. I don't know why, but I am afraid maybe 25 years later, it is too early to publicly laugh about the genocide. However, I must add, however, survivors privately, this is what we do. Every day, survivors, when we meet, of course we tell our stories, but most of the time, believe me, we are not crying. We are just laughing. And this is true for survivors everywhere. Those who are in Rwanda, those who are in Europe, those who are in America, Whenever survivors meet between us at an event or just visiting, what we do is to use laughter and to help us survive. We want to live a happy life. We have survived, but we know there are so many people who are still very, very fragile. And one of the ways that help us live a happy life is really to use humor and to laugh. We laugh out of our stories. Things you cannot believe. While it can be seen as a tragedy or pain, when we are between us, survivors, we just talk about it and laugh out loud. That is true. I agree with what you just said. Laughter is, is a good prescription. You can really laugh in the face of evil, and I agree we should be even doing more of this. There's a saying in your language that means, if you really knew me and knew yourself, you wouldn't have killed me. Can you translate that for me and explain it a little bit? Well, this is a saying that is displayed in one of the churches in the Bugesera region, in Christine's native region. The church is called Nharama and thousands of people were killed in that church. And this saying was put out there by one of the survivors. And it says a lot. And I agree with it. If you knew me and knows yourself, you don't have killed me. If you knew me. That means I want you to look at my heart. I want you to look at my actions. I want you to look at my whole as a person in a humane way and not do anything bad to me because I am like you. I am a human. 
It's a kind of regret that people were killed without any effort to know them, to look into their heart and to know these are good people. And if you knew yourself, because these killers as well, many of them were regular citizens, regular people who went to church, who were taught God commandments. But at some point, they forgot who they were because they listened to the extremism, they listened to the voice of evil, and they forgot who they were. If you knew me, you would know that we are the same. If you knew me, you would know we we are the same. This is actually the definition of humanity. And it also makes me think about your book, Love Prevails. It goes to the heart of the matter. We are all the same, and everybody's got a story. If we look inside a person's heart and get to know them and their story, when somebody can go to the dark side like that, it's because they lack that love somewhere along the way, and they felt marginalized and didn't feel safe and secure and didn't have those kinds of connections. And those all come from feeling safe and feeling loved and valued. So thank you for explaining that. What's the message that you want people to take away from your story today? Well, there are many things, but let me focus on only like three things. First, no matter what you go through, you can emerge strong. This is a message I think should get to anyone who is desperate, who is not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. No matter what you go through, you can emerge strong and live a happy and long life. For us believers, I think one of the things that keep us going is we lost our loved ones, but there is another way to look at it. Sometime I decided to look deeply into our faith and say, what can help us live through this situation? And I decided to look at my loved ones as as eternally living, not lost. They are somewhere they are living, we will see them again. The second thing I would like to communicate is that we have a power to do good. We have that power. It's inside us. You just need to decide that it's what you are going to do. It's there, but it's just awaiting our decision to do good. There is another side in us, or dark side. But again, we choose which side to take. And I believe this stems from the responsibility that our God gave us. He gave us freedom to choose. And third and last, I would like to say... How love is a powerful thing. Maybe it's obvious, but when we think deeply about love, we should understand that this is the number one ingredient in our life that helps us go forward. It can stand against evil. And I wish everybody could really connect with that notion and put love above all. It's beautiful. So in the first thing you said, when somebody doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, how does someone make the connection between being in a dark place or not being able to see the light? And how do they find the courage to determine what is right? 
what can someone do actively to connect to that feeling of love? That's a, a very good question. And it's very difficult for anyone who is feeling that way to emerge from that situation. But I think prayer is one of the concrete actions that we need to take to help us emerge from a situation. We need to pray to be closer to God. It helps us feel loved, feel protected, have hope. But also it is important that uh, we get surrounded by people who love us. There are always people who love, and one can choose to be surrounded by good people, by good loving people, and it's something that I believe can happen to anyone. Look around, who is surrounding you, who is your friend, and what are their values? Community is so important too, and choosing your friends wisely. Do you have to be someone other than who you want to be when you're with them. That is correct. The purpose of life is to have a meaningful contribution. And I believe anyone can find a way to connect with the community and to bring contribution. I agree. Thank you for that. And I'd like to shift gears just a little bit before I end each podcast. I do a quick round of lighthearted questions. Are you up for that? Okay. You ready, Christine? Yes, I am. What is your favorite sound? For me, it's a bird, bird singing. Jean Vasco? You know, I, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I love the sounds of nature. Favorite smell? For me, I like uh, flowers, especially roses and any kind of flowers. Fresh baked bread. This reminds me of my uh, childhood. Favorite word? For me, it's love. I agree on this one as well. Least favorite word? For me, it's a hate. How about you, Jean Bosco? Same, it's just the opposite of uh, my favorite word. What brings you joy? My family, my husband, my kids, yeah. And friends also. Yeah, this is true. We have fun when we are with our family. I love when I am with Christine and our kids and we are together. This is the best time of my life, being with my immediate family. What do you think God's reward is for the faithful? I hope it is eternal life. It is eternal life. That's correct. It's eternal life and seeing my family and friends there. So I hope I will see them and I will ask them what happened to them because we don't know. We know they died, but we never ask them how. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I believe they are happy now. They don't suffer anymore. And what will you say to God when you get to heaven? So for me, it's I say, where were you thinking, creating a human? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Why did you give humans their freedom? Their freedom. Didn't give them the wisdom to use it. Why did you give them self-will without wisdom? Yeah, self-will, yeah, I know. And how would you like us to remember your families today? I want you to remember them as they were very, very loving people, very caring and full of joy. I would like people to remember our families as dignified people, 
people who are noble, who had great values, people of great character, and most importantly, people of faith. I want people to remember that these were innocent people who were killed while they did nothing wrong. Instead, these were God-loving people, hard-working people, and the beautiful inside and outside. I want my family to be remembered as a family that puts love above everything. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to say on a personal note that your book has changed my life. You convey the horrors and the darkest side of what humanity is capable of, but without any bitterness or resentment, you let the goodness of humanity organically emerge and shine with a most luminous effect. So thank you for that and for having the courage to tell your story today. I'm sorry for the pain it's caused. I hope today has helped the healing process just a little bit more. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Miracose, thank you. Thank you, Mo. Thank you very much. For anyone who'd like to help raise awareness about the Rwandan genocide, I'll provide a link after the show to Christine and John Bosco's website called Love Prevails, whose purpose is to educate, particularly to younger generations, about the power of love. You can also find John Bosco's book, Love Prevails, One Couple's Story of Faith and Survival in the Rwandan Genocide on Amazon.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. See you next week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Bite of Courage. If you'd like to learn more about my guests or you'd like to leave a comment, please go to biteofcourage.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to check out my blog, humormewithmo.com, where I write about finding humor in life's absurdities. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. This is a trio production, all rights reserved.